Good evening. Oh, that's so sweet. Welcome to Socrates in the City. Well, we're thrilled to be able to do this tonight. How many of you are here at a Socrates in the City event for the very first time? Would you raise your hands? Oh my goodness, so many of you. And I should probably tell you a little bit about Socrates in the City. Um, I hate to say this publicly, but I guess I'm obliged legally to tell you that we are uh, what's known as a UFO cult. Uh, that's just who we are. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the mothership is, is going to come for us and take us away at the end of the evening. And if you didn't know, I apologize. Uh, it's only like six, seven light years away, but uh, that's where we're going together. We don't normally do things in churches, uh, as I said, but we will now and again do them in churches like this, in, in synagogues, and in sometimes utterly uh, godless venues like the 92nd Street Y. Thank you very much. Uh, now, I've not been here before. I believe the bathrooms are downstairs. Is that right? Yes? No? Oh, okay. The ba- if you need a bathroom, on 3rd Avenue, there's a Dwayne Reed. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, okay. Uh, part of what makes the format different tonight, we normally have a reception with wine. Uh, but as you know, uh, Mayor Bloomberg frowns on any kind of sugary drinks. Uh, he really put the hammer down. He just freaked us out. We don't want to get sued, so no wine tonight. I apologize. You could blame Bloomberg for, for a lot of stuff, actually. If you want to smoke, you can't. Bloomberg won't let you do that either. Uh, so I apologize. Um, now, those of you who have been to Socrates in the City before know that typically uh, when I'm introducing the speaker, I kind of roast the speaker uh, a little bit. But that's only if I like them. So that's just not happening tonight. Joe Lacanti, and I say this in love, he's just a reality that I, that I deal with in my life. You know there are people like that in your life? You just deal with them? That, that's what it is. Actually, that's not true. Joe, uh, he, he's such a good friend that uh, I don't even know where to go with the jokes with him. It was Oz Guinness uh, who introduced us, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. Some of you know Oz Guinness. There, there are seats uh, right here in the front. Don't be embarrassed. Please uh, use, the, use the pews in the front. Um, Gallagher is going to be opening for Joe, by the way. Nobody got the watermelon joke. I don't know if it's the room. What is it? Um, So Oz Guinness, who really helped us start Socrates in the city uh, and who was a dear friend, originally was the one to introduce me uh, to Joe. We've known each other uh, over the years, but where we really bonded was, I don't know, six or seven years ago, we were invited, I was invited to debate at the Oxford Union. Some of you have heard of the, the Oxford Union um, we were invited to, I was invited to debate there, and they, they asked me I could just you know, bring whoever I wanted for my team. I was able to have a team. I guess that made me captain. I'm your captain. And uh, the first person I thought of was Joe Lacanti. I was sure uh, he would not uh, be able to, to join me, but it turns out he's not that busy. He's got nothing going on. So he was able to come, and we debated at the Oxford Union. It was an extraordinary uh, experience, perhaps the most extraordinary experience uh, related to that was that, um, you know, with the jet lag and, the, and if you travel a lot, you, you know, you're at 3 a.m. looking for something to watch on TV, and there's really not a ton to watch uh, on TV, British TV. They, they don't have Sanford and Son, all the stuff that I like. It's just, it's just not on. You look, and it's not there. But we, we were able to find on some obscure film channel, um, you probably didn't know this. Some of you remember the movie Shaft starring Richard Roundtree. You, you remember that? 
Nobody remembers that, Joe. I'm just going to go with it. Anyway, Shaft with Richard Roundtree. It was one of those black exploitation movies in the 70s, or it maybe didn't rise to the level of black exploitation. But, but what you didn't know that was there was a second Shaft movie, and then, yes, somehow they found French money to make a third Shaft movie. So one night, Joe and I watched Shaft and Afrique. Yes. Oh, yes. Big punchline. And uh, it just something happened. Something happened there. Uh, we're just, we just got very close, and uh, it's embarrassing to talk about publicly, but I say that in love, Joe. What happened that night with that movie, unbelievable. Uh, more recently, Joe and I realized we have even more common. We've both been Mets fans since approximately 1970, and there are a few of us around. Um, but anyway, that's, that's the kind of silly background. Let me give you uh, a little bit more uh, on Joe's bio, in case you don't, you don't know. Dr. Joseph Lacanti previously served as a distinguishing visiting professor at Pepperdine University School of Public Policy. He also served as senior fellow and co-director of the Evangelicals and Civic Life Program at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, he was named a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum uh, in 2005. Some of you know the Trinity Forum. Uh, until 2006, he served as the William E. Simon Fellow in Religion and a Free Society at the Heritage Foundation, where he examined the role of religious belief in strengthening and reforming civil society. He's the editor of the book, The End of Illusions, Religious Leaders Confront Hitler's Gathering Storm. Uh, it came out in 2004, uh, and we had Joe speak at Socrates in the City, and I think it was 2004 or 2005 when that book uh, came out. Uh, it's a Extraordinary book, extraordinary thesis. Um, but uh, it's wonderful to have Joe back again for a second time to speak at Socrates in the City. Uh, Joe has served as a commentator on religion and culture for National Public Radio's All Things Considered. Uh, his articles, and there are so many articles, I'm amazed. He's one of these friends that just sneezes essays. It's very, very troubling to me as a writer who I struggle with paragraphs. I once wrestled a, a semicolon for like a month, just a semicolon. <laughs> Uh, it really is It's disturbing when you have friends that just can blow out essay after essay, but he's one of those people. Uh, he's written, his articles have appeared in many magazines and newspapers, including um, the New York Times, uh, the Weekly Standard, National Review, Los Angeles Times, USA Today, uh, Reader's Digest. Was that laughter in uniform? Is that the one? Uh, the Washington Times and High Times. <laughs> and, and you teach young kids, right? What a hypocrite. Um, his writing has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, uh, in my uh, case, most notably because Joe uh, wrote uh, an extraordinary review of my uh, Bonhoeffer book. Uh, and if you, if you need to know, this evening's basically payback for that review. Uh, I was out. I was down and out. You helped me out, Joe. I'll never forget that. Now you're down. Now you're in the gutter. And I, I reach out. I lend down a helping hand. Uh, I know you're going to make it, buddy. You're going to make it. Uh, it wouldn't hurt for you to make an effort now and again, but uh, you, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Joe uh, is a native of Brooklyn, New York. He earned his bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Illinois at Urbana and has a master's degree in Christian history and theology from Wheaton College. Uh, he got his Ph.D. in history uh, at the University of London at the King's College at the University of London. Of course, today, as many of you know, uh, he teaches at the King's College right here uh, in New York City. Anybody here from the King's College? I'm just curious, a few of you. Um, he teaches courses, uh, he, I'm sorry, he's an associate professor of history, teaches courses in Western Civ and American foreign 
policy. Well, before I give the microphone to Joe, uh, I just want to tell you a little bit about the book that he's going to talk about. This really is the book launch for, for his book. Um, I read the book uh, not so long ago, and I was so impressed. I thought, if it's possible, if we can figure it out with our schedule and get a venue, uh, I would love to launch the book uh, right here in New York City. Uh, and at Socrates uh, in the city. I'm glad we were able uh, to, to pull that off. So that's what this evening uh, really is. Uh, Chuck Colson, uh, whom uh, I love and worked for, um, gave the book a tremendous blurb. It's on the back uh, uh, cover there. And also our previous uh, Socrates in the city speaker, Oz Guinness, uh, gave it a tremendous blurb. I want to read what Oz Guinness said about Joe's book. Fresh, powerful, and often hauntingly beautiful, the searcher starts with a well-known account of a brief ancient journey and leads us on a tour of deep modern issues that no serious searcher can evade. With this book, Lacante moves beyond the journalist and the historian to write as a poet-philosopher on the deep questions of life. Most of you know we kid around about the UFO stuff, but what Socrates in the City is is a venue where we try to explore the big questions, the deep questions, the questions that one doesn't typically uh, explore uh, at a cocktail party in Manhattan, the big questions of life, uh, the meaning of life. Uh, That's what this book did so tremendously well that I said we really have to have Joe come uh, and speak. I'm happy that we were able to, to make that possible. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, my friend Joe Lacante. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Hi, to explore the big questions, the deep questions, the questions that one doesn't typically uh, explore uh, at a cocktail party in Manhattan, the big questions of life, uh, the meaning of life. Uh, That's what this book did so tremendously well that I said we really have to have Joe come uh, and speak. I'm happy that we were able to to make that possible. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, my friend Joe Lacante. Well, thank you, Eric, for that much too generous introduction. And um, for those of you who know Eric a little bit, you know that what drives him in life is his, his deep Christian commitment. And there are at least a couple of ways in which that Christian commitment shows itself in his relationships and his friendships. It's in his generosity and his loyalty. His generosity and his loyalty. He is a man without guile. Thank you, friend, uh, for this wonderful venue. Can we have a round of applause for Eric and everything he does here at Socrates in the City? And I want to thank the Socrates in the City team Kristen, for all the work you've done, and the volunteers from King's College. Thank you, uh, the King's College students, some of you who've endured uh, classes with me, and you're back for more punishment, brave souls that you are. And thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. Well, I'm sure you've got plenty of other things to be doing, but thank you for coming tonight. And it's terrific to be back at Socrates in the city because some of you know me. You know I come from an Italian-American family. It's a full-blooded Italian on, on both sides there. And in an Italian-American family, you don't always get invited back. I was sitting across the table from, uh, at a birthday party for my Uncle Vito, my dad's brother Vito. So you might just keep that in mind if you've got a problem with anything I say tonight, there's a Vito in the family. But uh, I'm sitting across the table from one of his good pals, Gustare, Uncle Gus. And Uncle Gus is right off the boat. He's, you know, he's been in the country for like 40 years still. He's got that, that broken English 
that Italian accent, and uh, sure enough, the conversation turns to politics, Italian politics. So I say, you know, Uncle Gus, what is it with the Italians? They have a government for like 18 months, maybe a year, and then they, they get rid of it. It dissolves, and it's chaos. And so he, he leans forward a bit. He gets a very serious look in his eye, and he says, Giuseppe, you have to understand what it means to be an Italian. Now you can imagine at this existential moment what it means to be an Italian, I'm all ears. You have to understand what it means to be an Italian. In Italy, if we don't like you, we get rid of you. So it's nice to be back, that's the point. Well, let's get into it. We're in the fifth inning of a baseball game, and if you don't like baseball, I think you'll like this story. Fifth inning of a baseball game between the Baltimore Orioles and the California Angels. And the sense of anticipation is almost unbearable. An unassailable record is about to be shattered. The date, September 6, 1995, it's a moment in the history of baseball that seems to reach beyond time, beyond baseball. Over the previous 15 years, Orioles shortstop Cal Ripken has showed up for work every day without complaint, without fail. Neither injuries nor illness can keep him off the field. He loves his craft, the craft of the professional ball player. So, without ever intending it, he has played in 2,130 consecutive games. 2,000. 130, a nearly superhuman record first set by legendary New York Yankee Lou Gehrig. The record has stood unchallenged for 56 years. No one in baseball ever imagined it could be broken. But tonight, tens of thousands of fans have crowded into Camden Yards to watch Ripken surpass Gehrig's achievement, and he gives them a night to remember. In the fourth inning, when Ripken slams a home run over the left field fence, the crowd is simultaneously stunned and exuberant. And then, in the middle of the fifth inning, when the game becomes official, which is how they do it in baseball, middle of the fifth, the game is official, a numerical banner displaying the 2,130 mark changes to 2,131. The crowd at Candom Yards rises to its feet and remains there for 22 minutes, giving Cal Ripken one of the longest standing ovations in sports history. It is a thunderous, unbroken expression of praise. Members of the opposing team, as well as all four umpires, joined them. Now, Cal Ripken is a pretty modest guy. He's in the dugout. The game can't start until he comes out and does a victory lap, which he doesn't want to do. But his teammates push him out of the dugout, say, you've got to take this lap, we'll never get the game going. And unlike most ballplayers, Cal Ripken has remained with the team that first hired him, the Baltimore Orioles, for his entire career. So this victory lap is not about a celebrity tipping his hat to some faceless crowd, some faceless multitude. It becomes something deeply personal a kind of family reunion. Ripken shakes hands, embraces old friends, thanks people by name. 
A commentator marveled at the thousands of hands outstretched toward Ripken. He was being more than cheered, he writes. This was adoration. Adoration. Well, some of the most ennobling human experiences are those in which we honor individuals, not for their celebrity status, but for their character. Their character. When quiet decency, faithfulness, or heroism almost demands our praise. Let's call it moral beauty. Moral beauty. Even as spectators, we find that such experiences can yank us loose from our preoccupations. Even if only for a moment, they lift us out of ourselves, don't they? They allow us to hear what C.S. Lewis called the shy, persistent inner voice, a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. A desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. Is this the desire, this sense of longing, that seizes two travelers on the road to Emmaus? And I think you have a handout here. You can look along. Now, near the end of that text from the scripture, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? What's going on in the minds and the hearts of these men? Let's just remember the circumstances now. The brutal death of the teacher from Nazareth, this man Jesus, has set these men to flight. The teacher was executed by the Romans on the charge of sedition. And it's not safe now for his followers to remain in Jerusalem. These men then are fugitives. They're fugitives. And they're headed home to safety to this village called Emmaus, a few miles outside of the holy city. So think about the psychological shock to the system for these guys. These followers of Jesus are Jews, of course. And Jews in the first century found themselves under the boot of Roman oppression, no matter where they lived. And yet, in the words of their own holy scripture, they have a promise of rescue and liberation. The political and spiritual redemption of Israel will arrive, they've been promised, but only after a final prophet, a man sent by God, a Messiah, leads the way forward. And this individual will destroy the Roman tyranny, defeat Israel's enemies, usher in a new era of, of freedom, peace, and justice. The travelers on the Emmaus Road had come to believe that Jesus was God's man, the final prophet. He's the guy. He certainly sounded like a prophet of old, a man in complete possession of himself and of his message. He spoke with a fearless authority, as if to ignore him was to taunt heaven itself. He worked miracles of, of healing, not heard of since the days of Ezekiel. God was keeping his promise to the Jewish people. The Messiah, the great rescuer, had arrived. But now, now, it all looks like a wretched mistake. Now, as these men retreat from the chaos of events in Jerusalem, the life and mission of the teacher have ended in violent and miserable failure. All of his magnificent words about God's love for the poor and for the oppressed have just dissolved into the putrid air of Golgotha. This voice of courage, this champion of the weak, 
had confronted the most powerful men in Jerusalem, and they lost everything in the contest. He saved others, they taunted, but he can't save himself. After all was said and done, he's the wrong man. So, what's the frame of mind of these two followers, these two disciples, when they first set out on their journey for home? Utter and complete disillusionment. Rob the average man of his life illusion, wrote Henrik Ibsen, and you rob him of happiness at the same stroke. And yet the stranger on the road, this third man who comes up alongside them, who they don't recognize, this stranger has drawn them out of their disillusionment. He has focused their attention on the Hebrew Bible and its many promises about the Messiah, the rescuer, and something he's told them is provoking them. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Something. What is it? And what effect is this knowledge having on their hearts and their minds? The stranger has helped them to see how God has been faithful to the nation of Israel. He's revealed to them some unapproachable mystery, an ancient secret not only about the Jewish people, but about the destiny of the human race. For the first time in their lives, they're beginning to glimpse a vision of the world they were meant to live in, a world without oppression or fear or sorrow or suffering, a city where justice and mercy make their home together. It's a place not unlike that described, I think, by our friend J.R.R. Tolkien, in Lord of the Rings. Got any hobbits out there in the audience? Secret hobbits? A few? It's a hopeful land, as Tolkien describes it, of men and women whose faces are fair and young and fearless and full of joy. It's something very close to this vision of human life, of how life ought to be, that has haunted the imagination of the West from its earliest Days We find hints of this among the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, who sought a more just and virtuous society. Let me ask the audience, what comes to mind when you think of the ancient Greeks? Word association. What comes to mind? Anybody? Socrates. Socrates, of course. Socrates. Oh, this is, these are cheap seats over here, aren't they? What else? The Greeks, the ancient Greeks. What comes to mind? The Olympics? Plato? Democracy. You're on to it. Think about it. In contrast to the tyrannies that dominated the ancient world, the Greeks acquired the radical idea that dictatorships were illegitimate. Why? Because they violated human nature. People were made to live in freedom, not to be ruled by force. The Greeks wanted a political system in which they could govern themselves, where the people, the demos, had access to power, kratos. Their vision of a just society was a demokratia, democracy, right? The Athenian statesman Solon called this the sacred foundation for justice. Greek democracy, as we know, collapses, but the dream of a society governed with justice and equity is kept alive by a rising superpower in the ancient world, Rome. During his 40-year reign, the Emperor Augustus taught the Romans to identify 
with the destiny of all mankind. They alone were the chosen people who would bring peace and stability to a violent, terrifying, and uncertain world. The aim of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, wasn't simply to subdue other peoples. There was plenty of that. But to realize a new kind of civilization, a global political order that promoted a just and virtuous society. That was the Roman vision. Director Ridley Scott, his historical epic Gladiator. Who's seen the movie Gladiator? Anybody out there? All right, a few Russell Crowe fans, all right. Early in the film is an exchange between Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor, and Maximus, his loyal general, played by Russell Crowe. It is a fictional exchange, but it offers an insight into Rome's self-understanding of its global mission. Let me just read you a few lines of dialogue from the movie. Do you see that map, Maximus? That is the world which I created. For 25 years I have conquered, spilled blood, expanded the empire. Since I became Caesar, I have known four years without war. For what? He's going through self-doubt. Maximus, 5,000 of my men are out there on the freezing mud. 3,000 of them are bloodied. 2,000 of them will never leave this place. I will not believe that they fought and died for nothing. Then what would you believe? They fought for you and for Rome. And what is Rome, Maximus? I've seen much of the rest of the world, he says. It is brutal and cruel and dark. Rome is the light. Rome is the light. The world outside its borders was black with barbarism, random violence, grinding poverty, hopelessness. Rome was different. Here and nowhere else was civilization, a government that upheld rights, laws, order, religion, and virtue. With darkness all around, Rome was the light. Now, why does this history matter? Why does it matter? Because it reminds us that there's something common to human societies everywhere, lodged deep in our DNA, that reaches anxiously for a world outside of our actual experience. Something not quite of this world. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? Even a glance at the record of humanity's struggles, the wars, the revolutions, the assassinations, the constitutions, the conspiracies, it reveals our restless ambition for a society that has achieved the highest degree of justice and peace. Think about it. Plato, student of Socrates, your guy. Plato imagined a republic of philosopher kings who ruled with perfect equity. Listen to Plato. The city we have founded, if we have built rightly, will be good in the fullest sense of the word. Then jump ahead. The early Marxists dreamed of what? A worker's paradise. A worker's paradise. A world without poverty or want. The French revolutionaries believed that their new regime would protect the natural inalienable and sacred rights of man, right? Liberty, egality, fraternity, right? The American founders called their republic a new order for the ages. The architects of the United Nations, just down the street, designed a global community to, quote, save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. So what's going on? What's going on? 
C.S. Lewis detected in all of this a universal longing, a desire to bridge a divide that stretches between us and this other reality. Lewis called it our inconsolable secret. There's a phrase, our inconsolable secret. Were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road? What happens to people when a vision of this other world gets hold of them? What does this other world look like in real life, in real time? Well, three stories to flesh it out briefly. A story about healing, a story about courage, and a story about rescue. A story about healing. It's the outbreak of the Crimean War. 1853, Russia squares off against France and Britain over control of the Ottoman Empire, modern-day Turkey, more or less. The conflict proves to be the bloodiest of the century, and gruesome reports of the conditions of the wounded begin filtering back to Great Britain. So, on October 21st, 1854, a head nurse and a team of 38 women volunteers set sail for Istanbul, 339 miles across the Black Sea, to treat British soldiers. The leader of the team, a headstrong 34-year-old daughter of privilege, can anybody guess? Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale. What she finds when she arrives almost defies description. Soldiers untreated lay dying, not just from their wounds, but from typhoid, cholera, dysentery. But Nightingale gets to work immediately, establishing sanitation, obtaining medicines, making ward rounds daily. She transforms the role of the nurse. Here is how a reporter on the scene for the Times described her work as her slender form glides quietly along each corridor. Every poor fellow's face softens with gratitude at the sight of her. When all the medical officers have retired for the night and silence and darkness have settled down upon those miles of prostrate sick, she may be observed alone with a little lamp in her hand making her solitary rounds. What caused Florence Nightingale, this woman born into an upper-class British family, to leave behind a life of ease and to hurl herself into a swamp of human misery? What was it? A journal entry, she wrote, during a trip to Cairo, offers a partial answer. God called me in the morning, she wrote, and asked me, would I do good for him alone without reputation? Would I do good for him alone without reputation? Something, it seems, spoke into the conscience of Florence Nightingale. Was it a glimpse of a world healed of its suffering? She would not rest while others were in need. In the army barracks at Istanbul, she could be seen on her feet for 20 hours at a stretch. They called her the lady with the lamp. I write a story about courage. Courage in the face of great evil. Summer of 1938, ethnic Germans in the Sudetenland, the Democratic Republic of Czechoslovakia. They start agitating for union with Germany. Nazi party operatives are stirring up violence in the Sudetenland. The Second World War has not yet begun. Blitzkrieg hasn't started. But Hitler is magnifying war anxieties 
by suggesting that he wishes to bring the Sudetenland back into the German fold. You get the picture. Well, the British Prime Minister at the time, Neville Chamberlain, is determined to quash any mood of militarism that might arise in his own cabinet. It was very important, he says, not to exacerbate feeling in Berlin against us. Hitler's bellicose warnings continue. Chamberlain flies to Germany to make a personal appeal to the Nazi leader to avoid war. After enduring several hours of the Fuhrer's ranting about the treatment of the Sudeten Germans, Chamberlain agrees to dismember Czechoslovakia. The details are to be worked out at a second meeting. In a few days' time, the meeting at Munich. The leaders of four European countries, Britain, France, Germany, and yes, let's not forget the Italians, Mussolini. Benito Mussolini. Gather in Munich, the birthplace of the Nazi party, September 29, 1938. No leaders from Czechoslovakia are part of the negotiations. Let me underscore it. No leaders from the Czech Republic are part of the negotiations. They're not invited. The democratic state of Czechoslovakia is effectively carved up, handed over to Nazi Germany. John Masaryk, son of the founding father of the Czech Republic, warns Britain and France with these words, if you have sacrificed my nation to preserve the peace of the world, I will be the first to applaud you. But if not, gentlemen, God help your souls. Well, Hitler pledges this is the last territorial claim I have to make in Europe. British Prime Minister Chamberlain returns to London, waving his paper agreement with Hitler, declaring peace for our time. Peace for our time. The euphoria over Chamberlain's diplomatic initiative still shocks the conscience. The press is almost universally uncritical especially the Times of London. Listen to the Times. No conqueror returning from a victory in the battlefield has come home adorned with nobler laurels than Mr. Chamberlain from Munich yesterday. In the days following, Chamberlain receives over 20,000 letters and telegrams from a thankful nation and equally grateful allies, including the Pope and the American President, FDR. But one man in Parliament is not thankful. One man in Parliament believes his nation's leaders have made an idol out of peace and that they have sacrificed justice on the altar of a false god. It is this leader who stands up alone on the floor of the world's oldest parliamentary democracy to utter a prophetic warning. We have suffered a total and unmitigated defeat, Winston Churchill tells the House of Commons. We have passed an awful milestone in our history when the whole equilibrium of Europe has been deranged and those terrible words have for the time being been, been pronounced against the Western democracy. Thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting. And do not suppose that this is the end, he said. This is only the beginning of the reckoning. This is only the first sip, the first foretaste of a bitter cup which will be proffered to us year by year unless 
unless by a supreme recovery of moral health and martial vigor we arise again and take our stand for freedom as in the olden time. Well, for two long, desperate years, Britain would stand alone against the monstrous tyranny of Nazi Germany. It was a supreme act of statesmanship, of moral courage, that saved Western civilization from a black and hopeless future of racist barbarism. As his daughter Mary wrote to Churchill after the war, I owe you what every Englishman, woman, and child does, liberty itself. I'll write a story about rescue. Rescue. No period was darker for European Jews than the final years of that war, when Hitler's Germany was carrying out its final solution to the so-called Jewish problem. From every country under German occupation, Jews were identified, arrested, shipped off to concentration camps. Villagers, though, in a poor mountain hamlet in France stood against this tide of criminality and murder. During four desperate and destitute years, 1940 to 1944, the entire village of Les Chambons opened its homes, its farms, and its cellars to Jews on the run. They managed to rescue about 3,500 Jews, all of whom survived the war. Why? Why? Why did the residents of Les Chambon make room in their hearts for the Jewish refugees among them? You could be arrested or executed for helping the Jews. Well, put simply, it was love that moved them. It was the love of Jesus. It was the Christian ideal of compassion taught from the pulpit and lived out in family and community life, led by Protestant minister Andre Trochme and his wife, Magda. The villagers of Les Chambon bound themselves to serve the Jews among them regardless of the risks. And working with other French villages, the Chambonais sustained the most effective Jewish rescue mission in France under the Nazis. Historian Sir Martin Gilbert, official biographer of Churchill, he's written extensively about the Holocaust and the Second World War, records his own amazement at the story. He says this, the story of these villages is a high point in the narrative of rescue. A high point in the narrative of rescue. Now, friends, when we hear stories like that, what goes on inside our hearts and minds? What's going on in your hearts and minds now as you hear stories like that? What is it? We're drawn to these individuals, aren't we? And to everything they represent. But what are we drawn to? Is it moral beauty? Well, just before Philip Haley discovered the story of the Chambonet, he was in a state of deep depression. He had finished researching a book on cruelty, and for weeks he was tormented by stories of torture and killing. Fear, bitterness, and fury filled his soul. But when he finished reading an account of resistance among the villagers, a scene in which they openly defied French police by sheltering Jews, he found that his cheeks were awash in tears. 
What had wrung these tears from me, body and soul, the way you squeeze a grape, seeds and all, to get its juice, he asked. It was joy that did it, overwhelming joy, which can squeeze tears out of us as suddenly as misery can. Well, we're getting closer, I think, to understanding what has seized the imagination of these two travelers on the Emmaus Road. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? When Jesus the teacher walked among these men during his earthly ministry, they were captivated by his description of the kingdom of heaven, the promise of Israel restored. Now their attention is drawn not simply to Israel, not to a new political community, and not even to God's kingdom, but to a person, to a person, to the Messiah. It is to him that the stranger has directed their minds and they are nearly overcome with joy. So what has he told them? He's told them a story about healing, about courage, about rescue. All the elements are here, friends, in this ancient story, this vision of moral beauty. Our inconsolable secret has finally been revealed. How a world of breathtaking beauty fell into darkness and ruin because of human selfishness. But God, compelled by his great love, went on a rescue mission. He has worked behind the scenes of history, deep within human culture and society, incognito to overcome the darkness and to redeem the human race from a desperate tragedy of its own making. Philosopher Dallas Willard calls it the divine conspiracy, another great phrase, the divine conspiracy. In some ways, it is like a conspiracy, like other conspiracies that have appeared in history. It's inspired magnificent heroism as well as wretched betrayals. It has sparked wars and created exiles. In its cause, it has deployed spies and assassins, soldiers and clerks, mothers and prostitutes. The steadfast march of its purpose has toppled kings and determined the fate of nations. And yet, the consummation of this conspiracy depends not on the will of powerful men, but on the appearance of a helpless baby born to a poor Jewish girl in a cramped stable on a cold night, a night as quiet as falling snow. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? It's not enough, friends, for our hearts to be burning, to be drawn to this story of healing and courage and rescue. It's not enough to know the truth about God and about ourselves intellectually. The travelers on the road to Emmaus are being asked to submit themselves to this truth, to fulfill their own part in this great story of rescue and redemption. There are only two classes of persons who can be called reasonable, wrote the philosopher and mathematician Pascal. Only two classes of people that are reasonable. Those who serve God with all their heart because they know him and those who seek him with all their heart because they do not know him. So, it seems we face a choice. 
It's something like the choice, I think, facing those hobbits in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Early in the story, some of you remember, Frodo Baggins asks Sam Gamgee, his faithful friend and servant, if he wants to leave the Shire and venture on. Is he willing to join Frodo in this great quest to destroy the ring? Will he answer Gandalf's call to help the citizens of Middle-earth to defeat the dark forces of Mordor? Or is Sam content to remain where he is, neutral, uncommitted, in the comfort and the safety of the Shire? Do you feel any need to leave the Shire now, Sam, now that your wish to see the elves has come true already, he asked. Yes, sir. I seem to see ahead in a kind of way. I know we are going to take a very long road into darkness, but I know I can't turn back. It isn't to see elves now, nor dragons, nor mountains that I want. I don't rightly know what I want, but I have something to do before the end, and it lies ahead, not in the Shire. I must see it through, sir, if you understand me. I don't altogether, Sam, but I understand that Gandalf chose me a good companion. I am content. We will go together. Well, here's our choice, I think. To embrace this story about God's rescue mission in our world. To love the light, to hate the darkness, to answer the great calling on our lives. This is the hard way, friends. This is the hard way. It begins in the valley of doubt. It begins in disillusionment. But it doesn't end there. As we follow the call, as we walk in the way of Jesus, the teacher, the rescuer, we do not travel alone. If we ask him, he will choose for us good companions in the journey. And more than that, he himself will walk with us no matter how dark the darkness and no matter how long the road may be. Thank you for listening. Like, first of all, uh, <clears throat> I should have said this in my intro, that the, Joe and I are going to sit at a table and we're going to talk. And I try not to listen in because uh, just some private things. But in a moment, we'll open it up to you. Now, we wanted to um, – uh, we've done this uh, a number of times over the years of Socrates where uh, instead of uh, going right into the Q&A, uh, I would have a little bit of a conversation with the speaker. And then we will open it up uh, for you all. Now, will there be a microphone available? There will be. Okay. Well. That, that'll just be a few minutes. But this is such a nice table and such a nice tablecloth. I feel like we should order a couple of bowls of pasta vizul. <laughs> something. A little something. Um, well, Joe, honestly, thank you uh, for everything you shared. Um, I have to uh, say again what I said in my introduction. This is a really great book. I'm really excited. It's a, it's a kind of a, in some ways, a strange book because I was reading it. And I, I was thinking that I haven't read anything quite like this. Uh, you are clearly a teacher. You're a historian, as we just heard. You like to tell stories. But my first question to you is, what was it that prompted you? And for the life of me, I have no idea. I, I'm dying to ask you this. What prompted you to write this book? Well, thank you for that question, Eric. And how are we doing back there with the heat, everybody? You holding together? 
All right. Thank you again for your patience and endurance and all. Um, There'll be lemonade any minute. Lemonade's coming. No sugar. You know, it seemed to me... <laughs> no sugar. Sorry. It seemed to me that there were at least two kind of uh, views out there. Maybe it's unfair to call them extreme views, but views that I thought uh, about what faith is, about what Christian faith is, that I just thought were unhelpful, uh, not really biblical, not terribly Christian, and they kind of needed a little pushing back. And when I read this story... In Luke, uh, tucked away there at the Gospel of Luke, this encounter that these two men have, these friends have with this stranger, you see something, you get a glimpse into the nature of Christian faith. You do. I think... I think many of us have read that. We, we didn't get that glimpse, so thank you. Let me give you a glimpse. Yeah, give us a glimpse. Uh, and I think the two views that are out there that are not very helpful that I kind of wanted to push back against, uh, one comes from outside the church, but I think one also comes from inside the church. The, the view outside the church is, you know, faith is just... It's this irrational thing that you just kind of do. You have uh, kind of an emotional need. You need an emotional crutch. And so you turn to whatever it is, Jesus, Buddha, UFOs, whatever it is, you turn to that thing, and that's your emotional crutch. And that's kind of what faith is, no matter what the religion is. That's kind of coming from outside the church. But then I think there's a view inside the church, too, that maybe it's the way that talk, people uh, talk about it. It's kind of like, well, one day you have faith, and then the next day God just kind of zaps you with faith. He just zaps you. He just reaches down, and now you just believe. An hour before, ten minutes before you didn't, but now you do. And when you look at that story carefully in Luke, that's just not how these two men came to faith. The Greek word that's used when it talks about these guys discussing with each other all the things that have happened in, Jer in Jerusalem, discussing, the Greek word is they're having a real argument, a heated argument. They're debating. And then the stranger comes alongside and the conversation continues. In other words, they're thinking, they're debating, they're arguing, they're reasoning. Yes, it seems, if you take it from a faith perspective, God is taking the initiative, right? He's coming alongside in the person of Jesus, if you buy into that, right? So yeah, God's taking the initiative. There's something about the supernatural mingling with the natural, but let's not forget the natural. And it seems quite often that the supernatural has to kind of smuggle itself in with the natural. And I thought, you know, it doesn't seem like even within the church, we kind of maybe talk about that in a healthy way enough. So I thought, let's push back a little bit using this portion of scripture to do it. Thank you for that. Well, I'm still, I was fascinated when you told me the idea for the book. I don't know if it was a year ago, you told me about the title and, uh, but, but I still found it interesting that you'd use this passage to, to launch a whole book, basically. I, I am, I'm still amazed that you decided to do that. Well, I think you've got different elements kind of of the human struggle and the human condition in this short story with these two guys. Because as I've suggested, they start out on the journey disillusioned. They're in despair. When the stranger comes up and he asks them, what have you guys been talking about? And the line from the Gospel of Luke is, they stood still, their faces downcast. They're grieving. They're grieving the loss of their hero. And for many of us, it's the experience of grief, disillusionment, discouragement, that launches people on a quest. Actually, before you, before no. you go on no, about no, no, go that, ahead. I'm just, uh, I don't know if everybody caught it when you were talking about it, but this, this, this passage, The Road to Emmaus, of course, it's a classic passage, but for those of you uh, who need some refreshing, um, uh, Jesus has died, and these two guys, these, it doesn't say their names, right? We have one name, Cleopas. Cleopas. Uh, he played for the Mets in 1969. He played for the Mets in 1969. Outfield, yeah. No, shortstop. Uh, but uh, Cleopas and someone else, they're walking along the road to Emmaus. It's seven miles, right? I wrote about this in my Everything About God book, and I, I kind of dug into it. I didn't see anything you saw, but I saw some things. 
But what amazed me is that they're walking seven miles, right? Yeah. And as you say, they're absolutely grieving. They're messed up. Yeah. They're dead. They're lost. They're freaked out. Yeah. And uh, although it doesn't use the term freaked out in, <laughs> in, the, in the Greek, but I believe that's what it would say. You're the Greek scholar. If I'd written it. Uh, but I'm Greek, yeah. So basically, they're walking along. And then it's like a Shakespeare play. The stranger comes up and joins them, but they don't recognize him. Now, they, really, it's right out of Homer or Shakespeare. I mean, this idea that he is somehow veiled, yes. that there's a mystery. But Jesus yes. is now talking to them. And I guess I found it to be comedic on some level, like, like in a Shakespeare play. The, the idea yeah. that they're talking about Jesus to Jesus Yes. And that he doesn't reveal himself. Yes. There's something funny about that. And yes. I don't mean funny in a sarcastic way or morbid yeah. way, but it, yeah. it's, it's extraordinary irony in yes. a literal theatrical sense of irony, right? Yes. They don't know. They don't yes. see what's in front of them. And uh, he then unpacks the scriptures to them. He starts telling them, I mean, can you imagine if we had a tape recording of the Bible study that, that they get from him? But it's just amazing to me yeah. that th- this little uh, passage exists as it does. There's just nothing like it in the scripture. But I still want to know what it was that prompted you to write a a, a book about it. Or maybe the question I mean is that, was it one day, literally, you're reading that passage and you say, I think that this can leverage a whole whole book? Because in the book, you tell so many stories as you did tonight. But what, what, what was it that prompted you that said, this is a book? I don't know if it was a particular moment, but it was kind of um, there's such an elegant simplicity to Luke's account. Luke was not only a doctor by, by trade, I think he was also a journalist at heart. He just had this eye for detail, for narrative detail, this guy. And the way that he tells that story, it just there are certain elements there. Their grieving, their confusion, their inability to recognize what's going on. And maybe because of, in terms of things I was going on in my own life, it just seemed deeply relevant to me that somehow this story has an enduring power to speak to us. Because if you think about it, I think there was a real um, conversation that happened on the road to Emmaus. But if you think about it, it's also a tremendously powerful metaphor. Because we're all on the road to Emmaus at some point in our lives where we experience deep discouragement, disillusionment, betrayal, failure. Now we're on the Emmaus road and now we're looking for answers. Well, I'm still, I'm still amazed that you saw what you did because I, when, I, when I read that scripture, until I read your book, I just didn't see this, this uh, whole um, angle on it. Now, now, in the book, you are very tough on, what, what do we want to call it, organized religion or, or whatever, toxic re- religion. Um, I, uh, I have myself talked about this uh, in some public venues. Uh, <laughs> in fact, my ebook is titled Jesus is the... No, what does it say? Jesus hates dead religion. That's it. So this is kind of a big theme sure. with me personally. But you yeah. were particularly hard on bad examples of religion in the, in the book, yeah. bad examples of Christian religion. And I guess uh, my question is, how does your critique of religion differ from, say, Richard Dawkins's or Christopher Hitchens's? Because yeah. they, they also are very tough yeah. On, yeah. on religion. Thank you for that. And let me just take a minute with this. Um, you know, in the story, in the account in Luke, there's a little line there where they say, you know, our chief priests, our elders, they handed him, handed Jesus over to be executed. We thought he might be the one to redeem Israel, but our chief priests handed him over. And I think what you have there is an example of what, what, what is it? What's going on? How could it be that this guy, Jesus, who was so adored, even worshipped by tens of thousands, where ordinary life would just come to a screeching halt, how could it that the most religious 
uh, people in that culture, in Jewish culture, the chief priests, how could they be somehow close to that whole execution business? Now, to its great shame, the Christian church has used that as an excuse for anti-Semitism through the centuries. It's a horrible history. It's part of the history. But the facts on the ground are, well, the Jewish leaders are involved in this thing, right? How did it happen? And I, my answer is, borrowing from our friend Christopher Hitchens, poison religion. Poison religion. Something goes wrong with religious belief. And where I differ from these guys, I think, to get more to your point here, Eric, in a couple of ways. One is, it's one thing to become, I think, skeptical about organized religion for all kinds of good reasons. I think skepticism actually is a pretty good thing. It's a lot to be skeptical about. There's that wonderful line from uh, Winston Churchill describing Clement Attlee, who was prime minister after Churchill, and they did not get along at all. And Churchill said of Clement Attlee, Mr. Attlee is a very modest man, and yet he has very much to be modest about. You know, that's kind of Christianity in the modern world in a lot of ways, right? So I get all that. Skepticism is not a bad thing, but cynicism is a different thing. Cynicism is an inability to see the good, to see what might be useful and positive and enriching and life-giving. And whether it's faith or something else. Cynicism, I think, ultimately involves a kind of intellectual confusion and dishonesty at the end of the day. And here's what I mean by that specifically, again, to your point. How do you differ from Hitchens and Dawkins and the others? I think these guys fail to recognize that within the Christian story itself, in the life of Jesus, no one is tougher on the poison of religion. No one is tougher on hypocrisy than Jesus. He calls the hypocrites of his day, the most religious people of his day, what? Whitewashed tombs, empty graves, unmarked graves, and children of the devil. That's from sweet, peaceful Jesus. He meant it in a good way, though. <laughs> he meant, yes, he yeah, meant it, yeah, yeah. of course. Of course. So the point here is, is that the, uh, the Christian church, beginning with the founder, has always understood the willingness the inclination of people in the faith to abuse the faith for the sake of their own power trip and to manipulate others uh, for their own selfish ends, to use religion in that way. That's always been part of the record, and the church has understood it and has worked against it. And it seems to me the, the cynics don't seem to acknowledge that at all, which is a problem. Well, I guess I, uh, that's what I saw as a particular strength of the book, is that you were very honest about the downside of what, what passes for religion. It, yeah. it was just great. Um, okay, final question from me. Um, the, this passage, of course, and then your book ultimately hinges on the idea of a literal resurrection, a man who was dead and then uh, comes to life. What do you say to somebody who w- either wants to see that whole thing as a, as a metaphor uh, or what do you say to somebody who is uh, a little bit uh, more cynical than that and would simply say, look, the whole thing is ridiculous, and so you're basing yeah. your book fundamentally yeah. on something that <laughs> could not happen? Yeah, it's a big question. It's, you can only, only scratch the surface right now. We can certainly take more in the Q&A. And just a partial answer, folks. I don't have a complete final answer, a partial answer. You know, in the book, I have this little story about uh, the death of Rudolph Valentino. That silent film star, my grandmother, by the way, just adored Rudolph Valentino, the Italian stallion, you know, of his day. And when he died, people went crazy, especially the women. They went crazy. Women committed suicide in front of his photograph. They committed suicide. Actually, some committed suicide twice. Did you hear about that? No, I didn't hear that's about that. That's how much they loved him. Thank you for filling in that. Thank you for that filling in the detail. And uh, so he's adored. And then after his death, pretty quickly, you get these stories about 
appearances in the graveyard over there in Hollywood, shadowy appearances, talking to them from the dead, and then books being written, you know, uh, hearing from Rudolph Valentino from beyond the grave. And you can start to think, wait a minute, maybe the, je- the death of Jesus thing, it's kind of like the Valentino thing. We got these overwrought women, we got these shadowy appearances, etc., etc. How do we know it's just not the same kind of thing? I think you, you run into a problem with some of what we already talked about today, uh, this evening. These guys, it says, these two followers of Jesus, they're in the inner circle, these guys. They know him pretty well. And it says they're kept from recognizing him. And so you would think, well, wait a minute. If, they, if they're kind of in a Valentino frame of mind, and then Jesus comes alongside after being crucified, well, then why aren't they just ready to recognize him for who he is? Why aren't they just ready to believe that he's risen? Gung-ho on the resurrection. They're not. In other words, they're not psychologically prepared for a resurrection. And so one of the things that you have to think about as an historian is, okay, what did the Jews think about resurrection, the surrounding culture? We're so used to resurrection now. We've got the we got, you know, TV series, The Walking Dead. We've got the vampires running around. We're so used to all this stuff. And what we forget is the Christians introduced the idea of resurrection in the West. They introduced it in the West. The Egyptians, the Sumerians, yes, they believed in an afterlife, but nobody believed for a minute that once a soul was departed, it would come back into our life in our time. (laughs) The highway to heaven was a one-way road, one-way ticket. Nobody expected mummies to be coming back out of their tomb, walking around, having tea, and nobody wanted it either. The Christians introduced this idea of an immediate bodily resurrection. The Jews weren't expecting it. These, Jew, these Jewish followers weren't expecting it. So emotionally, they just weren't prepared for it. Now, that doesn't prove anything. My point is not to prove anything. My point is to kind of lay some groundwork for a, a longer discussion. They weren't just in a Valentino frame of mind. Their culture, their religion did not prepare them for that. They're kept from recognizing it, and then something changes their view. Thank you. All right, well, that's enough from me. I want to give you all a chance uh, to ask uh, some questions. So the microphone is, is being set up there. That's, again, if you're new to Socrates and City, and so many of you are new, that's a big part of what we do. We, we want you to ask uh, questions. And the more, the more hostile, the better, I would say, right? <laughs> Although Joe told me backstage he does prefer, and he's adamant about this, he prefers true or false questions. Thank you. <laughs> Mr. Martin, welcome. The first true or false... Is this on? Yes. Yeah. The first true or false question... He is risen indeed. We're looking for a one-word answer. Verily. Uh, do you, do you, do that you was a, a joke. That was a joke. Do you have an actual question? I will ask my actual question. This is a tough room, Peter. Believe me. I will ask my actual question. Yeah, it is. Um, it's interesting how you say this story is obscure. I remember when I was an eight-year-old boy and came down from Dutchess County and was taken by my grandfather to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And we were going through the museum, and one of the great paintings there is Caravaggio's painting yes. of, on the road to Emmaus. Yes. And I took a postcard home with me, and it's been with me all my life. Yeah. It traveled over to England, the university, and it's something that has always fascinated me. So I think that concept of something burning in our hearts is an internal concept that even as a child we see. Caravaggio, of course, after I learned a little bit about art history, was excoriated for that painting because it showed dirtiness and, 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 and dust in what had previously thought been a very pure and holy Jesus. 
So that was that controversy. So it's always been a wonderful story, and I cannot wait to read your account. Thank you very much. Thank you so and much. By the way, Caravaggio was the secret word. You get a free book. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very and, uh, much for that. I neglected to say that uh, at Socrates and City, we, we, we typically insist that you f uh, put your question, if you don't mind, put your question in the form of a question. I'm sorry to insist, but that's just in the bylaws, the board... Uh, We'll hold my feet to the fire on that one. <laughs> but nobody's gone up to the microphone. Is it, is it that scary? It's that scary? I can keep asking questions. I'm amazed. This, is, this has never happened before. It's something about this room. The, the uh, architecture is daunting. Okay, I know you while you're forming your questions, Joe and I are going to order a macchiato. <laughs> How about a Bellini? A, yeah. Bellini? a Bellini? Anything, anything. With the table here, we can, we can do it. Um, I, I want to ask you... Um, a question. How did you come to faith? Were you raised in a, in a home of faith? Well, I was raised in a, in a, a Catholic family, a wonderful Catholic family. And, um, so, and I'm very, very grateful for that, those Catholic roots. I don't think I, I really understood the meaning of the Christian gospel as a young man. I think that happened in college later on. Uh, and that's a long story. We don't need to go into all the details of that. But certainly it was the kind of the getting into the word uh, the, this Christian scripture for the first time as a young guy in college was instrumental for me. And I think there's something about, I was studying journalism at the University of Illinois. And there was something, again, back to this whole journalism thing, I, I was just captivated by the Gospels because, Luke especially, because there's so, there's a sense of immediate, there's something a journalist do if you, if you kind of read the paper seriously and, and read good, uh, good journalists, they'll place you in the scene, right? They'll include some little detail in a scene, to give you the sense of immediacy and being there. It may ha not have any real importance, but it's just something that somebody saw and they wrote it down. And the Gospels are filled with those little details. Right. And that kind of got my attention as an aspiring journalist. How come these Gospels read that way? That, that was provocative I, I came at them from the point of view of a fiction writer. Uh, I was a fiction writer <clears throat> until the critics told me to stop. Um, but, uh, yeah, the idea, there are these quirky details that don't, you don't find those kind of quirky details in a folktale, for example. The idea that they caught 153 fish. Or there, there are lots of other bizarre little things in there that seem that somebody would have combed those things out, uh, but, uh, but they remain in there. So, well, that's interesting. Uh, is this a question? Yeah, yeah no, it, it definitely is a question. In fact, in, in all Keep it short because there's a long line, pal. All right? <laughs> Speed it up. Come on. Come on. Oh, I'm sorry. Chop, chop. I'm going to talk slowly here. No, no I, I've got to tell you, this has always been one of my favorite passages, and I always thought it was like the key verse in all the Bible was when Jesus said about he, he opened the scriptures to them, and he pointed to every single passage that, that applied to him and the fact that he was going to come back from the, the dead. And, and the what I wanted to ask you, and it's a numerical question because I haven't really been able to find a definitive answer really, is how many scriptures were there that, that he might have opened up here to right. them? I, I've heard like 330 or 333, something, yeah. an, an amazing number because any person that could fulfill even seven of those particular scriptures about the coming Messiah was going to be the Messiah and here Jesus was fulfilling all 300 and some number which yeah. of course proves that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Yeah. So to yeah. me when people say we can't prove or disprove, I say right there you can prove because the facts the evidence says 
if you fulfill all those, then you're that person that they're talking about. So yeah. the number, please, if you have it. <laughs> I don't have a number. I don't know the number. It's a great question. It's a, a question for a biblical scholar, which I'm not. It's a terrific question. What is fascinating to me in some of this, though, kind of back to this earlier point a bit, is yes, there are these Jewish, there's predictions in the Jewish scripture about the Messiah, what he's going to do. But, you know, they, they have been interpreted, and for centuries they're being interpreted by the Jews as this is political liberation. Political liberation. Because wherever they are in the world, they're second class citizens at best, they're living under the boot heel of the Roman Empire. So they have begun to interpret uh, those verses, not in a s deeply spiritual sense, really, but in a political sense, at least many of them. And if they think about it in a spiritual sense, it's going to be, okay, the Messiah is coming at the end of time, a resurrection at the end of time, and all the rest of it, not some immediate resurrection. And then the whole idea of the Messiah dying. I mean, that's what was so anathema to the, to the Jews. That's what didn't make sense. That's what threw them on kind of an emotional what roller coaster ride the, the the liberator of israel to die like a common criminal on a roman cross made no rational sense and that help, if that's true then that makes the account sensible it makes sense that they would be so unable to appreciate who's standing next they're just not emotionally psychologically spiritually prepared for this they're not expecting it and i'm going to go with the number 324 Yes, sir. Dr. Lacanti, thank you for your talk. I have a good to see you, Michael. Thanks for coming tonight, to brother. As well. I should say, Michael Toscano. I should just point out and, and embarrass Michael Toscano. He was my research associate at the King's College uh, last year, when we were hastily, madly, desperately crafting the Western Civilization curriculum. Mike was an invaluable help. Thank you, Mike. Great to see you. Thank you. So you've identified the fountain of all political ideologies as a longing for another world. How do you take account of early modern thinkers like John Locke, of whom you are a scholar who attempted to ground political thought and empirical knowledge? Boy, let me think about that question. What do we do with guys like Locke who are trying to ground, let me get your question now, grounding reality in empirics, say it again, grounding reality in empirical knowledge, what we can see and taste and feel? Go ahead. Exactly, that's exactly right. What do we do with the modern thinkers that way? I see, who seem to be, uh, you're suggesting, who seem to be rejecting this vision of a, an, another world, right? Terrific question. Well, what do you do with Locke? I wouldn't put Locke, I mean, this is not a discussion about Locke, but let's, let's say if we want to put Locke in the category of the Enlightenment crowd, right? Which seems to want a sort of, maybe it's too broad a stroke to say a heaven on earth. The Enlightenment crowd, which is not paying attention to this biblical narrative, are they? I think Locke did, but Voltaire and others who came after are not interested in the biblical story of things. How do we explain it? Well, I think part of the answer is, look, the French revolutionaries who are very much influenced by Voltaire and the secular enlightenment, right? What are they after? They are af they're after a society that in their minds is going to be governed with great justice, maybe perfect justice, democratically from the bottom up. Right? Throw off the king, throw off the monarchy, throw off the church. And the average Frenchman will be able to govern himself or herself. So there's a vision there, it seems to me, of human potential and life in a more just and virtuous society that the French have. So what would I say? I'd say that's a suggestion or a shadow of something deeper. Just because they reject the explicitly religious thing 
doesn't mean there isn't maybe an echo and they're replacing the religious with the political. I think that maybe is a partial answer to your question. Replacing the biblical story with a political story, which is the revolutionaries, which is Marx. W- would, and, uh, would Buckley have called that imminentizing the eschaton? Um, uh, imminentizing the eschaton? Anybody? Any Buckley fans? Have... That's what he called it. Anyway, who, who cares? Please continue. <laughs> Did you have a follow-up there, Mike? A follow-up no, on no, that? thank you very much. Thank you. It's a terrific question. And I think that probably is what happens. I mean, it's a, fa- it's a great question for a, for a longer discussion, but let me just say this and, and emphasize it. The fact that our modern project is so eager and desperate to build a more just political society, whether it's through the United Nations or whatever it is, to me that's just evidence that the longing for eternity, the longing for this other world, it is deep within us. And if it's not filled by faith... It'll be filled by something else. I mean, look what men and women do in the name of politics, in the name of justice, apart from God. I know what they do with God and with religion, but I know also as an historian what they do without God and without religion, and it ain't pretty, a lot of it. It ain't pretty, yeah. So your book's entitled The Searchers. What do we do about the tens of millions of people that are not searching in our society? I mean... After the disciples and the followers saw Jesus, they went out and converted this pagan Rome. And it wasn't such a glorious place, always, as you described at the beginning. It was, it was, it was horrible, actually. Built on slavery, all the rest of it. Absolutely it brutal, right. Brutal. Yeah. But these, these handful of people went out, Paul and, and others, and, and they converted in a very rapid time this, this, this heathen society. And here we're living in you know, our contemporary world, and people aren't seeking. Um, they're finding diversions. What, what do we do about that? Yeah. Terrific question. I guess maybe kind of putting the question maybe back to you a bit here is, are people not searching? I mean, when we say they're not searching, do you mean they're not searching for meaning? They're not searching for significance? They're, they're not responding to that moral beauty? I mean, think about this film that's come out here and it's going gangbusters. Um, um, Hunter, what is it? The, um, the Hunger Games. Hunger Games. The Hunger Games. How do you explain this passion for the Hunger Games? What's going on in that story? I haven't seen the film yet, but I know the basic plot line, right? What is it? Self-sacrifice, right? Willing to lay down her life for her sister. And the book is like, I think it's um, tens of millions of copies have been sold. The film is, gro- is breaking records in what it's grossing. It's, what is it? It's a redemption story. Uh, so I wonder if people aren't searching at some level for that story to be connected to that story. It may not be an explicitly religious search, but that doesn't mean they're not searching. I think. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I see your point. The Lord of the Rings was extremely popular. I'm sorry? The Lord of the Rings was extremely popular, the, the movie. The, the what? The, tr- the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the, the Rings. Movie. Lord yes. of the Rings movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was popular too. So you yeah, I think point. for similar reasons. The, the great appeal of the Lord of the Rings. Heroic sacrifice for a great cause. Something beyond yourself. Well, that sounds a little bit like the Christian story, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's, it's not linking up with people, right? It's, uh, you're right. My daughter read all three versions of the, uh, the Hunger Games. There are two other volumes after it in a week. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Although to disprove this point, The Avengers has also done very well. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> I knew it was a mistake sad. having you at this table. I, I, I apologize. Was a By the way, can we get a couple of bowls of stracciatella? <laughs> if you have a moment in the back. Uh, is there another question Thank behind you? you? Question. Thank Ter- you. Terrific question. Thank you. Thank you. I have this faint memory of hearing a commentator suggest that one of the travelers was female. 
Do you know if there's anything to either negate that or support that? Oh, you mean in the account in Luke? Yes. That, uh, the that two Cleopas, travelers. his companion, is actually a female, maybe his wife, for example? Or it maybe was not. open up as to who it could be. A number of times I've heard you mention the two men traveling. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just wondering scripturally, you know, does it confirm that there's two men it's or is it clear. just two travelers? It's not clear. And the biblical scholars disagree about this, right? And the reason is there's another guy named Clopas, not Cleopas, but Clopas in the Gospels who has a wife named Mary. And so some people think, well, Cleopas, Clopas, maybe, you know, the, woman, the person there unnamed is his wife. I, you know, I think I could go either way. Would it, that make any difference in some of the points that you were making in your, in your book? I don't think so. I okay. hope not. Okay. I, I was drawn to the idea of two friends going back to maybe their probably what is their childhood home, where they live. Because right. think about what we tend to do in a crisis sometimes if our home was a happy home. Uh, we're in a crisis and we go home. Safety we, of home. Right? Yeah. So I don't think it would make a difference, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Thank okay. you. Thank you. How might one respond to a secularist or even an adherent of another religion who says, well, the stories you tell, there are all kinds of motivations. Uh, Could you stand closer to the microphone? Sure. It's very tough for us to hear back thanks, here. Thanks, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> I'm rarely told I'm not loud enough. Uh, who um, say there are all kinds of motivations for doing uh, heroic things. And I might also point to... Uh, societies before or after the advent of Christianity, which seemed to work pretty well, at least as, as well as most Christian-based nations, whether it's a, an era during ancient China or uh, present-day Denmark, which yeah. polled as the they polled as the happiest people in the industrialized world or something <laughs> like that, uh, whether that's true or not. Yeah. How would you... Uh, um, what would you say if they asked, so what's so special about Christianity when these other things, both sacred and secular, can give you the same effect? Yeah, yeah. Great question, and I only have a partial answer to that. I mean, my, my argument here is not that uh, heroism is the unique province of Christianity, right? But if you think about the Christian story, if men and women are actually made in the image of a God who's really there, and that God who's really there is heroic, he's sacrificial, he's brave, he's loving, he's kind, then it would make sense to me that men and women made in the image of that being would in some way be drawn to that person, that character, that being, because that's like father, like son, like mother, like daughter kind of thing. They're just, they're drawn to it. Um, that's consistent with a, a Christian understanding of the human person. It's not proof of anything. So uh, heroism and, and sacrifice and and courage. You know, these things are not uniquely Christian, these qualities, by any means. But when we see those qualities displayed, you have to think, well, what does that tell us about human nature? Why? Why do we worship? And we do worship, but we certainly are drawn to the heroic. And I think, you know, straight, this is not a conversation about Darwinism, but there's just no explanation, it seems to me, in a purely natural sort of Darwinistic world. Why exalt the heroic? Darwin's just the other way. You know, it's brutality. Survival of the fittest. It's going the other direction, isn't it? Right? Not self-sacrifice. It's get the other guy before he gets you. That's the material view of the world. So we have to ask the question, where does that, that um, what Lewis calls that inconsolable secret, that yearning, where does it come from? 
Well, uh, wouldn't bioevolutionists argue that uh, self-sacrifice might be good for the tribe or the species? No. Okay. <laughs> now that's a good, that's uh, well. What do you say, Joe? There seems to be so many contrary examples when working in a way that serves only your own interests in a brutal, ruthless, unforgiving fashion. That's the way to survive. That seems to be the norm in the natural world. So. Uh, actually, that's um, a good question to ask David Berlinski on June 12th, just to remind you. He uh, has written a book called The Devil's Delusion, which is a, a critique of scientism and uh, materialism, uh, and probably he would have a, uh, an answer, a long, interesting answer, uh, specifically for that second question. So, yes. Pardon me? Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your, your talk tonight. I look forward to reading your book. Um, the gentleman was asking the question before about Locke. It spurred a question in my own mind about uh, what you look to as a model of good governance then here on earth. I mean, if you're, look, if you're appealing to heavenly sort of spiritual models, yeah. uh, what should, is, is the idea of uh, the French Revolution bringing that sort of aspiration here to earth? Is that a fool's game? Or do you have models of good governance that you'd, you'd appeal to? Boy, excellent question. So it's kind of a political question. And um, I'm an historian, so I can kind of, you know, evaluate uh, these various experiments. You uh, did write your PhD dissertation on John Locke. I did. You did. Well, that's, good. that's great. By the way, we have a limit, two Locke questions <laughs> per Q&A session. So that has to be I've the last Locke that. question. Well, I'm sorry. Just, uh, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that question. I guess I'd say a couple of things which I think are also consistent with human nature as, uh, uh, in terms of the Christian story of human nature that are good things to see in any political system. There are at least two things, I'd say. And this is very Lockean. Government by consent of the governed. You have a say in your political system. You can make a difference. You have a voice. What are they fighting for in Syria, we think, right now? Where is the Egyptian revolution going right now, the whole Arab Spring? I, no, people aren't talking about it enough in these terms, I think, but that's a very Lockean impulse. Government by consent of the governed. Why? Because people are made in the image of God. And so they're equal. They're of equal worth in God's sight. And so no one has the right to tyrannize another, right? That's very Lockean, also very consistent with the Christian understanding of people. The second thing I'd say is what you want to see in a good society is religious liberty, freedom of conscience. You've got to have the right to go on this search that we've been talking about tonight. And that, it seems to me, what Locke and others right up to the American founders, Madison, Jefferson, and the rest of them, they wanted to create enough civic space, political space, so that every person, no matter where they were, what their religious background was, faith or no faith, they had the freedom to pursue the truth about reality. Call it God, call it something else. They had the freedom to do that without being harassed by the state, without being pushed into somebody else's mold, right? Without having to conform. Unfortunately, the majority of the Muslim world is still struggling with that principle. They want the first Lockean principle, government by consent. It doesn't seem yet that they are hungry enough for the second principle, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. A very, I think, Christian idea. The freedom to pursue God or to reject God. If God himself will not force these men on the Emmaus Road, if Jesus is not compelling them to believe, and he doesn't, right? 
He chides them for their unbelief. You're slow of heart, so slow to believe the scriptures, unbelieving hearts. He chides them, he criticizes them, but he doesn't hang them. He doesn't burn them. The great scandal of the Christian church through the centuries, ignoring this deep Christian truth, faith has to be freely chosen. So I'd look for at least those two principles, governed by consent, freedom of religious belief. Great question. Thank you. That is a great question. Uh, we, have, we have time for one or two more. Is that a, do we have a question there? I've noticed that several of the questioners have sported beards this evening. Well done. Well done. <laughs> yeah, that's intentional. Um, well, I mean, Luke, the passage in Luke is really wonderful. And I was wondering, you know, but it, perhaps it's so ordinary and also so familiar that we tend to miss that. And are there other scriptures that that you can point to that have a similar impact or sort of unlock the, the mysteries. Uh, and, and especially, I think, the one in Luke is particularly a wonderful one to start out with, with someone that doesn't believe the faith. You know, for example, it sort of underpins all of the Old Testament because, you know, Jesus is talking with and explaining how the Old Testament really points to him. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. It's a terrific question. Again, I'm not a Bible scholar. This is something as a layman, you know. I'm not a pastor, not a minister. God is protecting congregations from me, I like to say, you know. And I believe that in the depths of my heart. Um, so I don't study the scriptures the way I should and the way others do. I'll tell you what I think, though, in answer to that question, might be one of my next books, a passage that I'm pretty struck by, and it's the last missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Because what you have in that story of him from under, basically under arrest from Jerusalem to, to, to Rome... And he's got this long boat ride in between, shipwrecked at Malta, under the protection of a Roman guy named, I think, Claudius. I think it's Claudius. And what you have in that story, it seems to me, are two contrasting views of the world. The Roman view, power, um, oppression, the Roman view of justice, slavery, the pagan gods, paganism, really, represented in this Roman guy who's overseeing Paul, guarding him the whole way. And then, of course, you have Paul, this great champion of the Christian faith. And I think in those couple of chapters that describe this amazing journey with, with amazing historical accuracy, we have, I think probably have the most complete description of a shipwreck that we have in ancient literature that we have there in the book of Acts, also written by our guy Luke. It's a fascinating account. I think that might be one of the next books. By the way, you know he was Greek. He was a Greek. Oh, well, yeah, they're, was all, Greek. Oh, they're all Greek. No, no, no. They're all, all, they're they're all, they're all, they're all Jews. Ones. He was, he all was, the, great he was Greek. the Greek. Yeah, Here, I said it. The Greek doctor. Right. I'm Greek, but you're a doctor. <laughs> um, well, I think this will have to be our final question. Go ahead. Uh, thank you, Professor, for the book. I, I look forward to reading it. I, I got a little turned off by Eric's name on it, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Get out. <laughs> no, no, no. Go. All right. Just give your own medicine. Ask the question and then run. Um, no, I'm curious. You, know, you, you sparked a few. Uh, you sparked this question. Was speaking about some of the atrocities and the stories that you spoke about tonight in history, that um, to me seem to repeating them, like repeat themselves. How do you feel about history repeating itself? And do you do you believe that we are in senses where you just don't just do the same old stupid thing over and over again? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of a yes and no to that without being too uh, churlish about it. Um, if 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 history just repeats itself, that, that implies that we're kind of stuck in this little cycle. Everything's cyclical and we don't really have choices to make. 
it's somehow predetermined for all of us, right? And the Greeks had struggled with that idea to some degree. But the Christians introduced this other idea of contingency. Contingency. It's a fancy word. It just means you've got choices to make. You've got something what we might call free will. The capacity to choose life, to choose God, to reject God, to choose the light, to choose the darkness. And so in that sense, I don't think um, it's just history repeating itself again and again and again. However, human nature doesn't change. And so both the greatness, the beauty of human nature, but then the fallenness and the darkness and the wretchedness of human nature does play itself out, right? Again and again in different ways. I believe that, that's what it was. The human nature's mistakes over and over again. Yes. And like just seem just like, you know, fall becoming so indulgent. I mean, at Rome, I mean, becoming so indulgent to the point where they just got overtaken because they were just like, lazy and orgying and stuff. And, yes. And I, I just kind of see, you know, similar things happening. It's, you know, just it's, it is human nature. I can't say, you know, history will be the same. Yes. But it's human nature. You're yes, right. I mean, the, I mean, just to quickly uh, on this point again, you know, the British, as, as, uh, as Eric knows better than most of us here because of his wonderful book on, on William Wilberforce, the, the man who led the British crusade against the slave trade, abolished slavery in the, in the British Empire. It's an excellent book. And that happened, you know, that was done in 1833. The British were able to abolish slavery thanks in large measure to this Christian influence. But what happens on the American side? Civil War. Civil War. Different set of choices to make. And that is something remarkable about, it seems to me, how God has structured the universe. He allows us in an almost frightening way to make these choices. Amen. Yeah. Thank you for that question. Thank you. Uh, My final question was going to be, what's next? But you've already answered that question. The shipwreck. Do you have a title for this next book? I guess the working title is um, The Last Voyage... A soldier, a saint, and a shipwreck that changed the world. What do you think? I like it. I like. Do you have a publisher for this? Maybe Thomas Nelson. Maybe Thomas Nelson. We're we're in communication. They'll they'll burn you. Don't go with them. (laughs) Don't go with them. You wouldn't believe the stories. No, they're they're my publisher, so I can joke. Uh, I want to say a a, a few uh, things before I thank you, Joe. I mentioned our next event is June 12th, David Berlinski. That dude is crazy in the best way. You don't want to mess, you don't want to miss Berlinski uh, if you can check that out. June 12th, University Club. That's on our website, uh, SocratesInTheCity.com. I've just been informed uh, by my producers that uh, if you are a student and you didn't get a book on the way in, we do have enough books for you. Uh, so if you did not get a book, uh, you're entitled to get one on the way out. If you got a book uh, but would like to buy a book for, for someone else, uh, we have books for purchase. I, I maybe mentioned that uh, up front, but we do have books for purchase. By the way, normally at Socrates in the City, we have all of the books of all our previous speakers uh, and so on and so forth. And we've got Socrates in the City books. We've got a, a, a compilation sort of anthology we came out with this year. Uh, d- today, we don't have that. But normally at our events, we've got the smorgasbord of books. But today, only The Searchers uh, is available. Uh, in a moment, um, we will, uh, Joe will, will be here uh, to sign books. Now, all the books should be signed, but if you'd like your book personalized... 
or if, or if you just don't like the signature, you want him to do it over, uh, Joe said that he would be, be do that. So you can do that, or you can just take your signed book and get out. And, um, uh, but anyway, I want to thank you for all coming, and I want to say to you, sir, you are a, a very natural teacher, so you should go into teaching, and uh, you really are a terrific writer. Though it's the, I didn't say this up front, but the writing of this book, and I'm very fussy about this, because a lot of books with great ideas that aren't beautifully written. Uh, this book is beautifully written. You are to be commended. I commend you. Thank you for coming, thank you, and thank you all for coming. Hopefully, thank we'll you, see you on thank June 12th. Thank you, Frank. Thank you.